Our scripture reading for today and the basis upon which our messages these next few weeks will be uh, taken comes from the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated us, or treated, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who believe and are saved. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we're going to start, as I said before, a new series called Glory Days. Uh, When you hear that term, glory days, I think most of us typically think it refers to some time long ago, like way back when it was as good as it could be. Or maybe some of you actually think of Bruce Springsteen, that song, Glory Days. Glory days, they'll pass you by. Glory days in the wink of a young girl's eyes. Glory days. But this is not what the message series is about. I believe our glory days are not merely in the past. I think our glory days are here and right now. 
To quote another old song, some of you may know from way back when, these are the good old days, so we can live with anticipation for each new day. But it's also true, I think, that most of us who are gathered here this morning probably look back quite often at what we call better times. For example, not long ago I was talking to a man who told me that just in the last five years, his sales for his company have dropped about 50%. And he can trace the decline to some decisions that he made. And he said something like this, I just wish that I could go back to where I was and do it right this time, make the right decisions. In my life, I've also visited churches that, you know, bemoan the fact that they don't make the same impact on their community that they once did. They, they no longer need a second service or a third service, and some churches don't set up nearly as many chairs anymore in their worship centers as they once did, and they kind of look wistfully back at what used to be, and they wonder, what happened to us? I mean, how do we get back to where we once were? But I think even more tragic than that, and perhaps you know people like this, there are Christians who fall into that category. Uh, they were on fire for Jesus at one point in their life. They were really experiencing power on a daily basis. They were the kind of people who shared their faith with anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place. They were seeing prayers answered. They were probably seeing miracles take place. But today the fire in their heart is barely flickering, and those days of victory are just merely a memory. So when you talk about glory days, many people immediately think of what it used to be. But for these next four weeks, we're going to look at one passage, a half a chapter, I just read it to you, that shows us that our glory days are right here, right now. And we're going to look at... Uh, Four different scriptural principles. We're going to look at one today and one the next week and so on until we do all four. It's how to make this moment of your life the time of your life. And so for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to encourage you to do something. I'll encourage you at the end of the message again today. And that is to at least a couple of times a week, open up your Bible and take a look at what I just read to you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39. Just 20 verses. And get yourself familiar with that passage so that each week, as you hear a new principle, uh, it will come alive and you're going to find a, it's going to find a permanent place in your walk with Jesus. Now, I'm also going to say that even though we are going to spend, well, not quite a full month, but four weeks looking at just 20 verses of Scripture, we are only going to barely scratch the surface of what this Bible passage has to say. And I say that because that's just how deeply layered is the Word of God. But I also promise that these four principles will turn up the volume and maybe brighten the color in your life. And will help you make these days your glory days. Now, the first principle we're going to look at is what I call the principle of renewal. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I know way too many Christians who say their Christian life just isn't what it used to be. Now, they kind of remember some spiritual highs of long ago, but not today. And they say, well, today is kind of lackluster. I mean, it, sometimes as a Christ follower, I just feel like I'm kind of going through the motions. Or have you ever really felt like you were running on empty? I remember back at uh, one of the churches we pastored, Lord of Life, uh, we sent out a bulk mailing to the community 
And we started a new series that said, Are You Running on Empty? If so, we're going to start a series on that. And I remember a man who later became one of our elders and who today he and his wife still pray for us each and every day, a man by the name of John Olson, who was sitting out at a little Methodist church out in the country. He got this mailer and he said, we were running on empty and any church that would try to help us fill our tank was a church we wanted to be a part of. It's kind of interesting. How many of you know what it's like to feel like you're running on empty? Well, I had a friend back in uh, high school uh, whose first car was kind of like that. I couldn't find that car that he drove around. Probably it looked a little something like this, but it would be a car that we would probably call a beater today. Uh, it probably got about 10 to 12 miles to the gallon. And being a somewhat poor high school student, he usually bought a dollar's worth of gas at a time. Or if we borrowed his car, we had to put a dollar's worth of gas in it. Now, this was back in the 1960s when you could probably get about five gallons of gas for a dollar. And so he would pump in a dollar's worth of gas at a time. And so his gas gauge was always just slightly north of E. (laughs) Now, one day we were out, uh, probably not one day, but probably one night, we were out cruising the streets of Seward, Nebraska, and the car began to sputter and stall. And he knew that he had gas. I mean, he put a dollar's worth in it the day before. And the engine continued to run in the car. But when he pressed down on the accelerator, it just kind of coughed and sputtered. And so we kind of chugged into the local co-op gas station. And the gas jockey combination mechanic uh, came out. And he told us, you know, the gas at the bottom of your tank is sludgy and dirty. You know, when you run on empty all the time, that sludge tries to go through the fuel line and it eventually clogs up your fuel filter. I mean, this wouldn't happen if you would keep your gas tank at least half full. Well, I remember my friend going, half full? (laughs) That'd be more than $5. (laughs) Where do you expect me to get that kind of money? And do you guys actually pump that much gas at any one time? And see, as much as he hated tying up his assets, I will tell you that he did start to get into the habit of keeping the tank about half full, and the problem slowly went away. Now, my point is this. This is exactly how our spiritual life works. It also is how our marriages or relationships or our dealings with our families or in our workplaces work. It applies how you do your job. You know, when you run on empty all of the time, pretty soon you're going to find that you're running on sludge and you start to sputter and you start to stall. And you just plain simple cannot go through life on an empty tank. And I want you to know something. I'm sure you do know this. God doesn't want you to do that either. He wants you to renew yourself in him on a consistent basis so that your tank is always full. Now, how do you do that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. That's that principle of renewal. And we're going to focus on just the first few verses of our text, verses 19 through 22. Let me read them to you again. It says, Therefore, brothers and, of course, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Of course, that was a reference to when that curtain split when Jesus died. That is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God 
with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, the key phrase, of course, is that one. Let us draw near to God. And some of you probably remember some old uh, uh, liturgy in the church. Let us draw near to God with a, with a steadfast heart. It, it, because that's really the key to renewal. And the writer tells us, us, to draw near because God's already done his part. He's already done everything that he could possibly do in order to have a right relationship with us. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, which I'll tell you is not necessarily an easy book to read, there are many references to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And that's because this letter, whoever wrote it, we don't really know who wrote it, uh, he wrote it to uh, Jewish Christians whose roots and understanding of the spiritual life was still steeped in ancient uh, Judaism. Now, when we read the book of Hebrews today, some of it kind of goes over our head at first glance. When I was at the seminary and we belonged to a little church called Ascension, one of the seminary professors taught a Sunday morning Bible class in the book of Hebrews, and I thought, I will never, ever try that. I, it was fascinating. I loved that class. But it talks a lot about stuff that you and I, just plain simple, are not very familiar with. But the bottom line is, if you understand it, I mean, what is the writer to the book of Hebrews? What does he really want us to know? What he wants us to know is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the debt for your sin once and for all. He was God's sacrificial lamb. And because of the blood of Jesus, your sins, past, present, and future, were all paid for. Now, that is always going to be the foundation of your faith. Jesus Christ through his death on the cross, paved the way for you to have a right relationship with God. Being right with God is not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It's not something that you accomplish through your own blood, sweat, and tears. It is and it always be something that you merely accept and receive. Now, in the early days of the Christian life, most believers understand this. I think I, a lot of people, when they first come to know Christ is their Savior. They become a Christ father. They kind of understand this. They know that their lives were full of sin. They have suddenly experienced the power of grace. But then sometimes, as time goes on, they, and not God, try to change the terms of the covenant relationship they have to the point where they begin to think that God only accepts them because of what? Their good behavior. Now, this is not just a modern-day phenomenon. In fact, in one of Paul's first letters that he wrote in the book of Galatians, he starts out in chapter 1, verse 6, and he says to this church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, what he's talking about, he says, you guys have now suddenly turned to what I would call the gospel of works. Instead of the gospel of grace. In fact, a few pages later, a few chapters later, uh, he says this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Now, 
It happened 2,000 years ago. It still does. I, I think of men in prison that I've worked with who have walked that aisle and accepted Christ. And they did that because they knew they were sinners. They knew they were lost and condemned without Jesus in their life. And they came and they walked that aisle and they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. What a great and wonderful thing. They understood about how he died on the cross and he rose again, forgave them of sins, past, present, and future. But then suddenly they come and they talk to you and they wonder if they're good enough for God to really love them. Has that ever happened to you where you've sat there and you wondered, I wonder if God could really love me because, I mean, if he really knew what I did or what I'm doing, well, guess what? He, he does and he did. <laughs> the answer is, yeah, of course. But see, uh, your life in God is not based on anything you do. Uh, it's based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. When you understand and accept that foundational truth, you can begin to take steps that you need in order to really thrive in your spiritual life. But you always begin at square one. Our relationship with God is always and only through Jesus. What does that hymn of the church say? My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and his righteousness. There's no other place to begin. You can't come. Jesus, I'm the best looking person at St. Mark's. You've got to take me in. <laughs> You're not getting in. But Jesus, I was raised in a Lutheran family. Jesus says, sorry, I wasn't Lutheran. <laughs> That's not going to necessarily get you in. See, if you're running on empty and your spiritual life is all sludged up, then perhaps you've unintentionally tried to change the terms and the conditions of the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Now, God has done all that he could possibly do for you. He bridged the gap between heaven and earth. He bridged the gap between his holiness and your sin. He did that all through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now he says, basically, the rest is up to you. He's asking you to take the next step. So in verse 22, what does he say? Let us draw near to God. God has drawn near to us. Let us draw near to him. See, the ball is in your court. That's what he's saying. Uh, to make this as plain as possible, what I'm saying is this. You today, all of us that are here today, you and I, are as close to God today as you want to be. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. You are as close to God today as you want to be. Now, for a long time, I didn't really believe that or understand that. I thought that in order to get close to God, that maybe I should develop a better resume with more good works or read more of the Bible or memorize more scripture passages or, you know, find a way to lead more souls to the Lord or give more money to missions. And then maybe I could be really close with God. Now, let me make it very clear. All of those things I just mentioned are really great things. But all of those good things that I just mentioned are destinations on the journey. They are not the fuel that drives the engine. See, when you try to use your good works or the good things you've done uh, to fuel your spiritual life, you're going to run on empty all of the time. And what little fuel you have is going to be full of sludge. The real fuel for the Christian life 
is found in that verse. Let us draw near to God. It is in his presence that we are renewed and revitalized. See, we find our strength not in the good works that we do, but in the intimacy that we experience with God when we draw near. And since his door is always open, you can draw near whenever you want. You can be as close to God as you want to be. Now I'm going to go back to the hymn that we sang at the beginning of the service today. We sang, Draw Us to Thee. Now I chose that song intentionally. You can probably guess since this is called Drawing Lessons. I've always loved that hymn, and I'm not suggesting at all that we take it out of our hymnal. But maybe we need to tweak that hymn just a little bit, because God has already done his drawing. He has done all he can through the sacrificial death of his son, and now it's up to us, really, to draw close to him. We draw near to him. That's what Scripture says to do. And with that in mind, I want to just share with you just maybe three guidelines in drawing near to God, how do we do that? I mean, we understand that he saved us. How do we continue this process? Um, now, Hebrews 10 tells us how. And the first of these is to be as sincere in your motives as you can be. Now, verse 22 again. Uh, if some of you remember this from the old liturgy. It said, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. That's how we began our confessions. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and confess all of our sins and iniquities with which we have ever offended him or and justly deserve his temporal and eternal punishment. That's how the old liturgy, back in that old TLH hymn book, whether it was blue or red, I don't know which one you used back in the 50s. Uh, but I'm going to admit that the sincere heart qualification challenges me sometimes. Because sometimes I actually ask myself, am I seeking... I mean, am I honestly seeking a closer walk with God? Or am I just seeking uh, a more successful ministry? Do I want more of God, or do I want more of His blessings? Do I want to experience His presence in my life, or do I just want relief from all of my problems? See, we need to draw near to Him with a sincere motive of wanting him. Period. Wanting him. Now the fact is, there's not a perfect person here this morning. I don't know if that's bad news for some of you, or a surprise to some of you, but it's the truth. There's not a perfect person in this building today. In fact, when you leave this building today, you will not run into one. Anywhere. Any place. Now, it's it is all but impossible to approach our relationship with God without some level of self-interest, though. But be that as it may, we always need to kind of do a heart check and a gut check and a soul check and ask ourselves, what is my motivation here? Am I drawing near to God because I want more of God? Or am I just drawing near because I want more blessings? For I want my problems to disappear. See, you may need lots of things. I mean, let's be honest. Who does not? Who here today does not have a long, detailed prayer list? You know, but let's make sure that first and above and beyond everything else, we desire more of God. 
Now, those of you that are parents can relate to this. The only time, sometimes, even today if they're grown up, that you hear from your kids is what? When they need something. Now, let's not be that way with each other. And more important, let's not be that way with God. That the only time we pray is because, oh Lord, I need you now. You know, challenge yourself to be as sincere as you can be when you draw near to God. Now secondly, be as serious about holiness as you can be. Verse 22 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So he's talking about holiness. And if we skip down to verse 26, he says something that's a little bit scary. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. I can almost remember the very first time I ever read that verse. And I remember thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's talking about me. I call myself a Christian, and I still sin. On purpose, even, sometimes. I've blown it. And there are a lot of people who think that way. I mean, I've sinned too much. I mean, God's given up on me. But that's not the message of the book of Hebrews. The point the writer makes here is not that you've blown it. The point that he's making is don't blow it and let go and walk away. Don't give up on being good. Now, he's saying that Jesus' death on this cross, this sacrifice, is something that we need to take seriously. Just as we should take seriously this call to be uh, holy. Because the only sacrifice our sins that we have is the sacrifice of Jesus. So he's saying, if you don't take Jesus and his sacrifice seriously, what other options do you have? I mean, how else are you going to find forgiveness apart from Jesus? I mean, to whom are you going to turn in times of trouble other than Jesus? I mean, there's no sacrifice for sin other than the sacrifice by Jesus on the cross. If that's not enough to make you serious about holiness, nothing else will work. Now, like I said before, when I read those words the first time, I kind of panicked because I was struggling with sin. I'm probably about 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe in 7th, 8th grade. But today, you know, 60 years later, guess what? The struggle still continues. And sometimes it's the same old nonsense that I was dealing with 60 years ago. And I would venture a guess that maybe some of you could go, yeah. It's frustrating, but we were born, we were conceived in sin, we were born in sin, and if you like a big seminary word today called concupiscence, which means we are sin, that's just who we are. We're going to struggle until the day he chooses to take us home. But see, if God's acceptance of me was based on my good works or my good record, then I would be out of luck, and the same could be said of every last one of you. But that is not how it is. God accepts everyone, not based on the price that you and I can pay, but based on the price that he already paid with his precious blood. And how much did he pay? Well, he paid it in full. You may remember that on the cross he said, it is finished. The Greek for that is tetelestai. It's an accounting term, which means paid in full. 
that's gone. You no longer have to pay. So for this reason, we need to take our holiness seriously. I mean, not to earn God's favor, but so that we can become more like him in all we do. So when you draw near to God, you ask yourself, am I serious about my Christian walk? Am I walking the walk? Am I talking the talk? Am I living the life to the best of my ability as the Spirit lives within me? Or am I just trying to be, quote, religious? Be as serious about your holiness as you possibly can be. And third, be as stubborn in your commitment as you can be. Now, many of you are you know, born and raised Germans, Lutherans. Now, I know some of you are some, from other backgrounds, like, but one thing I know about growing up a German Lutheran is a stubborn group of people. So you ought to be really good at this one. And I'm sure that uh, Italians and Irish and Scandahoovians and all those other ones, you probably are just as stubborn sometimes as well. But verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Unswervingly, that's an interesting term. If you have a King James Bible, it actually says, Let us hold fast. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about stubborn determination. He's talking about stubborn commitment. He's talking about hanging on for dear life in the hope that we have in Jesus. You know what it means to hang on for dear life? I remember as we were moving to Hong Kong back in the 70s, one of the places that we stopped was Disneyland out in Los Angeles. And we went on a ride called, uh, I think it was the Haunted House Ride. And I still remember my daughter, Terry. She was shaken, and she had a death grip on me. I mean, she had her legs wrapped around one leg. She had a grip on my one arm. I mean, she was hanging on for dear life. She did not want to lose her grip on what was going to save her, if you will. Well, you ever put a death grip on somebody else? Well, you need to kind of do the same thing here. A stubborn commitment. Hang on for dear life. And then he reminds us, he who made that promise is faithful. You're hanging on to the right guy, in other words. Now, why do we need to hang on and hold fast? I'll tell you why. Because there are going to be some days when all you have is hope. There will be days, and there will even be seasons of life, when all you have to go by is the hope that God is actually at work in your life and that he will actually do everything he's promised to do in your life. Now, I'm saying that there will be days when you just don't feel it. I mean, there are always going to be days when you don't really feel very saved. There may be days when you just don't feel God's presence. There will always be days when you don't feel God's blessings coming your way. And during those days, you need to just Stubbornly hang on and seek God anyway. Now, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make, and it's maybe one of the biggest mistakes that some preachers make sometimes, is to make people think that by drawing near to God, it's suddenly going to give you a big emotional payoff afterwards, that it's going to make us ultimately feel good. Now, the fact is, it does feel good. I, I'm not, not, not going to die. Drawing near to God does feel good, even most of the time, but not all of the time. I mean, sometimes we draw near to God and we just don't feel anything. 
I mean, we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes we lay our burdens at his feet, and we don't feel the burdens lifted off of us. Now, the question is, what do you do when that happens? You stay stubborn in your commitment. You hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. My hope is built on nothing less. You say, today, this isn't about feelings. It's about my faithfulness. I trust God, and I know that in his time, he will make all things beautiful. Now, this is kind of a side jaunt here. But I'm going to talk about this anyway. This came to mind. This also applies to our approach to worship. You know, when it comes to worship, many people in church today are a little bit confused. They think that worship often is some sort of a style of music. And there are a lot of people today who think worship ought to be really entertaining. And you should feel feel really good afterwards. Now, I would tell you that there's nothing further from the truth. If I had a dime for everybody who ever uh, said to me, I didn't get anything out of worship today, uh, which generally means they didn't like the music, sometimes they didn't like the preaching, sometimes they didn't like the person who sat next to them, you know, I could probably own my own personal island someplace. We all somehow make the mistake of of thinking that somehow as we gather in worship, and I'm going to tell you, we don't even use that word. I didn't get, we don't ever say, we didn't get anything out of worship today. What do we say? I didn't get anything out of church today. You know how you can tell the difference between whether you've gone to church or gone to worship? If you've gone to church, you're going to walk out and say, who picked those dumb hymns anyway? Or doesn't anybody take care of the air conditioning or heating around here? Or these pews are really lumpy. I mean, does anybody take care of this? I mean, pastor didn't make any sense today. And you've been to church. But if you've been to worship, you've been in the presence of God. See, we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that worship is something that is done for us. So that we get something out of it. It's not. Worship is something we do for God. For God. It's not a question of whether or not you were pleased with worship today. It's a question of whether or not he's pleased with your worship today. See, he's pleased when you draw near to him in our worship, whether that be public or whether that be private. He's pleased when you draw near to him with a stubborn commitment and an unwavering, unswerving hold on the hope that you profess, even when there's no emotional payoff immediately. But the paradox is this. I think about 80% of the time, if we actually stop and thought about it, there is a big payoff. I mean, it does feel good to be in the presence of God. It does feel good to hear that your sins are forgiven. It does feel good to have your burdens lifted. It does feel good to experience his power in your life. I mean, much of those times you feel that immediately. I I, I still remember a person who came to the communion table a long time ago. And after receiving communion, actually looked at me and said, what a relief that is. Now, I'm not going to read anything into what it was, but I think it was. What a blessing it is to have come forward to receive the very body and blood of Jesus Christ and know that I am forgiven. 
whatever relief that is. I don't know if that would be a good liturgical thing that on a Sunday afternoon when the pastor says, I, by virtue of my office, have called and ordained seven of the Lord, announced the grace of God unto all of you, and I forgive your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that congregation goes, <laughs> boy, that's great news. Maybe we should rewrite the Lutheran liturgy. Most of the time, I say, you feel these things immediately. But there are days, and just to be honest, and even seasons when you're not going to feel much. When all you have is this stubborn determination to draw near to him because you want him more than you want anything else. Even more than you want an emotional high. I mean, don't make Christian, your Christian life about feelings. Be as stubborn in your commitment as you can be. See, when you draw near to God, the book of James says he will draw near to you. And just like the book of Hebrews, James says the ball is in your court. You can be as close to God as you want to be, but it's up to you to draw near. It's your move. Now, I don't often like to make guarantees about in messages, but I'm going to make a guarantee today. When you consistently draw near to God, sincere in your motives, serious about holiness, stubbornly committed to holding fast, your tank will be consistently full. You won't be running on empty. You won't be running on sludge. You're not going to sputter and spurt all over the place. You're going to be kind of overflowing with the power of God's presence. So here's what I'm asking you to do. This coming week, for as much time as you can spare in the morning, spend a few moments presenting yourself to God, drawing near to him. Get rid of every other thing. And just move your heart in his direction, maybe simply saying this prayer, God, I want more of you in my life today. Can you, can you, I'm going to say it one more time. God, I want more of you in my life today. Now, can you say that together with me? God, I want more of you in my life today. That would be a great way to start today. So this week, early in the morning... Uh, spend as much time as you can just to be in his presence. Worship him. I don't know what that, that means. Sing a hymn. Play a CD. Tell him you love him. Draw near. And guess what? When that's all said and done, I think you will experience one of your glory days. Let's pray. Lord, we've sang, draw us to thee. But we also pray that we would draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.